Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Jude. We live in a world that is against the ways of Jesus. It seems that everywhere we look, the truth of God's word is under attack, even within the church. We as believers are called not to cower in the face of these attacks, but to boldly proclaim what is true and defend what is right. And this is what the book of Jude is all about. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Last week, we really went over the top. We went and did a whole book in one week. It was pretty incredible. We went to the book of Philemon, and there we saw the wonderful example or illustration of what happens when truth gets a hold of your life. It looked at the life of a slave owner and a slave who both came to Jesus, who both understood the similar grace of Jesus, experienced that, and how that would bridge then the relationship between them, that radical nature of grace. And I have, we have some copies of the book out there by Pastor Chuck, Why Grace Changes Everything. And I don't know about you, but I know in my personal life, when I met the Lord and he came into my life, he did change everything. And uh, he's still changing everything. There's still lots of things that I think he needs to change and he will change because he's transforming me and you who believe. He's transforming us. Did you guys realize that? There's a process of regeneration. The Holy Spirit is, is, is doing a work in us. And if you're going to belong to him and you're going to be one of his children, he's not going to leave you where you were. He's going to continue to pro. Now, you can resist him all you want. And you may have to go down the hard road the hard way, but he's not going to let you go. And he's going to follow and he's going to keep after you. And I'm so grateful that he does. Don't, aren't you? Um, that he doesn't let go. I think of the many times where I thought he should let go, um, but he didn't. And, and, and I'm just extremely grateful for that today. Today we're actually going to go to a different, another very short book, but a powerful book by the name of Jude. It has been a long time since we've done a study in Jude. I was looking back, realized, oh, how could I have let that happen? Uh, it has been too long. I've done it several times over the years, but we're going to do it again. Uh, I felt led of the Lord to do that. And then I've really been seeking the Lord, has been in my heart for a long time to actually from here, then we'll go into the book of Corinthians. But the book of Corinthians is, is one of those great exhortations I think is going to be good for us as a body, especially as we go into this season of more transition and seeing what God has in store for the future of our fellowship and the days ahead. But the Lord did put this on my heart. And as I read through it once again, I realized that though it is short, it is loaded. It is not like the book of Philemon. I think in order to do it justice, we're going to do kind of an intro here this morning. And then we're going to make our way through out the whole study of Jude in the next coming weeks until we feel settled that we've dealt with it and uh, that the Lord said what he wants to say and do what he wants to do in it through us in our lives. So please stand with me as we read this portion. In fact, what I was thinking this morning is that I'm going to read this morning the whole chapter. There is one chapter. It's interesting. Go to Jude. By the way, if you don't know where Jude is, you're still hunting, go to Revelation, the last book, and turn left, and it's right there. It's right at, at the end. But Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you that though 
you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept and eternal bonds until darkness of the judgment of that great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal life. Yet, in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, and reject authority and revile angelic master, majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he has disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, their clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves in the tree, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the, whom the, the, the black darkness has been reserved forever." And it was about these men that Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came, and with many thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, finding fault, Following after their own lusts, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you that in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These who are the ones who cause divisions worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting, and save others, snatching them out of the fire, and some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I'm sure you've heard that last portion a number of times. You may be seated. You can already, as you read through the letter, you can understand why it would not be appropriate to try to cover the contents of it in one morning, how it would uh, certainly weaken the message, I think, itself. It is something I think we, we really, really need to dig into, the implications of all that he is saying. But I want to begin in this introduction part, we're going to be looking at the first few verses this morning, that ever since the beginning of the church, whenever, wherever the truth of the gospel has gone out, the enemy of the truth has been sure to follow. That has always been true. And that is in itself a truth that you need to keep in your own hearts and minds. Listen, the enemy follows, wherever there is truth, 
He will follow behind to undermine and to rip off what is true or delude or corrupt what is true. We think of Jesus, how he gave ample warnings of this throughout his ministry. And I'm going to give you just a couple of them. And said in, in Matthew 7, 15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them, he says, by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered, are gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. He says there's a fruit there's something that you're going to see from them that tells you that they are in fact false, that these are not ones in aligned with the Lord Jesus. In Mark chapter 13, in dealing with the prophetic element, the eschatology or nearing that last time, he says, for false, prophet, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. The Apostle Paul, on many occasions, we look in the book of Acts when he is there on the island of Miletus there, uh, bringing the elders of Ephesus together on his third missionary journey. He gives the elders this sound warning. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciple after them. Therefore, he says, be on the alert. Remember that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He says, for three years, I impress this upon you over and over again. I wanted you to understand, elders, yes, you're going to serve the Lord, but there's going to be those who are always going to come to undermine the truth of the Lord. Paul would later write to Timothy very powerfully on many occasions, but a couple of these passages I think are very clear. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has, clear, has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Paul later goes on in his second letter to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, that you preach the word, that you be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul, speaking to, to the church at Corinth in his second letter to the Corinthians, as well, he warns them of the spiritual warfare that they go through and then he actually rebukes many of those who are in the church. He says, for I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from, the, notice this, the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different spirit which... Or, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Paul says, shame on you. Shame on you that you've, you've allowing these things to come to you, these teachers who seduce you away from that which is true. And then, of course, Peter himself has tremendous warnings 
that he gives in 2 Peter. And for instance, 2 Peter 2, 2, 1, he says, but false prophets also rose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their, notice this, their sensual, sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. When you go through the writings of the Apostle John, first and second, third John, warnings. He gives warnings of false teachers, antichrists. Many antichrists, he says, have gone out into the world. The spirit of antichrist already at work in the early church. James warns of it. And so we got to acknowledge that when we came to faith in Jesus in this most wonderful gospel, this simple, wonderful truth that when we committed our lives to Jesus, that we then entered into the arena of spiritual warfare. That there would be forces that would fight against the truth of God that was given to us. And that would be the point this morning. For me, and when I think about this, with all the amount of the warnings and the attention that is given throughout all of the New Testament, clearly warning of false prophets, of false teachers, actively seeking to undermine, corrupt, pervert, and distort the pure teaching of God's word, that any true believer should find themselves unaware, that they would find themselves naive and ignorant of the dangers of these deceiving spirits and forces of wickedness that are right now actively seeking to rob us of our joy, our peace, our hope that we have in Christ. For me, what makes all this all the more stark when you look at all the warnings is that there has never in all of history been a time when the truth of God's word has been made more available and more accessible than the day that we are living in, especially as Americans. At the same time, as I see it, there has never been a time in all of history that the word of God and the simplicity of the word has been more attacked, more maligned, more abused than it is in this day. So in this short but potent letter from Jude, you sense here the heart of a pastor. He has sheep that he's been called to shepherd the flock. Here he sounds the alarm, he sounds the alert. He sees what are the forces of apostasy that are sweeping through and leading many astray. Like with Peter's second letter, I believe that Jews' messages is really timely, not just for the time they live, but for the day that we live. The time where we are right now, the day that we're in and all that we're fighting around us. Because no one can doubt the climate of the day that we are living in is a climate of deception. It is a climate of confusion, of cynicism, of slander, of rumor, of gossip, of lawlessness, lasciviousness, which is simply license to sin, which leads, of course, to moral perversion of all kinds. I mean, today, you know, the very concept of truth itself is under attack. It is being made subjective to the whims and the desires and passions of the people themselves. And so people will say, well, I have my truth and you have your truth and we all have our truth. You know, I think of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, he says, to him, he says, for this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. He says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Then Pilate asked him the question, what is truth? What is truth? Now Jesus, we know in John 14, he boldly declares himself to be the truth. That he is in essence the summation of truth. What is really true 
will always be true regardless of whether or not people believe it or reject it, regardless of whether they accept it or understand it or if they don't. And here is the truth I want you to write down. Believing a lie can never make a lie true. Duh. Believing a lie will never make a lie true. It doesn't matter what you think and what they think or what anyone else thinks. The lie is still a lie and it is never true. The truth is and will be the truth whether or not people receive it or don't receive it, whether they understand it or don't understand it. And all people are accountable to the truth. The truth that God has given to us. However, I want to share this. I do believe that there is a greater accountability for those who have been given a greater light of truth for what God has given to us. I really believe in America that because we've been given so much light, because of the amount of Bibles that we have, because of all that's been given to us and so many translations, that because that light is so out there that we are all the more accountable to it. And I see that throughout history that God will judge each generation according to the light that was given to them. Today, the truth of God's word, we know this is being maligned, is being discarded, is being written off as fables of men. And tragically, they're seeing before us is a movement of apostasy a departure from the truth that is sweeping through not just the world as we see the world and its deceptions, which are many, but we are seeing it even within churches and individuals that we claim that name of being a Christian, but in practice, they bear no fruit of the truth. You know, we have denied the truth and made the truth subjective to our own passions and desires. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul warns of what he calls a coming apostasy that will occur in the latter days that will come with such a powerful deception and delusion that many not committed to the truth will be led astray. That coming great apostasy, departure from the truth, is going to set the stage for which the Antichrist makes his introduction into the world as the great deceiver. Paul writes of him in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, when he says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and will bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming is in accord, in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not notice this, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, and for this reason God will send them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they may also be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Notice that he says this is all in alliance with the coming of the lawless one, who we believe, of course, is, is the Antichrist when he comes on the scene. But like him, he has no regard for the law itself. The law is, is without moral restraint while he will establish laws. By the way, it really is interesting as you watch a culture get farther and farther away from God, you watch that culture will add more and more laws, trying to govern people who without the love of God. It's, it's interesting. It's a natural phenomenon that takes place. We're watching it. More laws. The answer is, oh, we've got to give more laws. More laws for this law. More laws for that law. The farther people get away from God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he says, hey, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is you love others as you love yourself. Love your neighbor. He says, I bring it all down to two. 
But when you watch people walk away from God, it's, it's this law and that law, more law, more law, more law, more burdens, more, 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 more restraints. Notice the phrase, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For that reason, it says God gives them over to a deluding influence so they may believe what is false. Why? Because they take pleasure in wickedness and in so doing, they suffer the righteous judgment of God. I have to tell you that for years and years, I remember when we were children, we were going to Costa Mesa, we're on the edge of our seats, I think the Lord's coming anytime. We thought this is, it was really an exciting thing for us. And I, by the way, I say it again, I never regret that. I never regret that the, that was put into my mind at such a young age in faith. But I see things all the more clearer even now that I'm older. But I remember for years as we began talking about end times and about the coming of Antichrist and the coming apostasy that, that Paul wrote to, to uh, Timothy about. However, I can tell you that in these last couple of years, it has become my conviction. It's become even more evident to me, along with many others with whom I have great respect for, that we need no longer look for the coming great apostasy. We are in it. We are right now in it. It is taking place throughout the world. It is affecting the church or those who claim to be of the church in a way that we can't even begin to see and understand here this morning. But there is an apostasy that is taking place. And it is of those who share, who have no share in the blessings and the promises of God's salvation afforded by the truth of this gospel that's been given to us. Satan hates this truth. He hates this truth. He is not opposed to religions. He authors religions. He'll make up a religion a day or 10 a day or 100 a day as long as it detects distracts from this truth of the gospel. He hates this truth. He hates the message of the blood of Christ for our redemption. He hates the truth of this saving grace by which you and I are saved by the merit of what Jesus has done for us. And so he comes and he takes this truth and he maligns it, he twists it, he'll use it in any way he can. You can find false teachers, teachers what do they do? Well, they use certain, or, or, or certain portions of truth. They use those portions to kind of build their lie. They twist it, they use it, they take things out of context because Satan hates this book. He is a deceiver. John 8, 44, Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We should never be surprised when we see the growth of many cults coming along, that people will willfully, earnestly follow after these cults follow after their leaders. We should never be surprised that there is today, even within the church, attempts to improve or to modify this truth of the gospel in order to make it more suitable, to make it more attractive, to make it more palatable, so that the hearers, when they hear, will say, oh my, that's really, I like it. Listen, I can have, uh, I can really pursue my own rich desires and the prosperity teachers, you know, I can really go for it, man. I can live my life high on the hog. And, it's, and that essence is just greed. You know, we should never be surprised at those who come, who possess these new revelations and these new truths, progressive truths. The Bible clearly warns of all these things. However, while we as believers are never looking to, or should be looking for new truth, we should always be seeking to grow in the truth 
of what has already been given to us. That's the difference. We are growing up in the knowledge of the truth that God has given to us, growing deeper into it. And this is really, as you see here, this is the heart of Jude, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has been provoked. He's motivated to write this particular letter where he sounds the alarm. He is sounding the alarm to the true believer so that they do not and are not naive of what is taking place and that they would diligently be active and guarding what is given to them. And so we begin in verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now that word Jude name there is actually translated Judas in our English, helps us to understand but it gives him distinction from other Judases who are in the Bible. Most of the time when we think of the name Judas, we're thinking of one particular Judas, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Well, this is not him. He's already hung himself. He's gone. He was the first apostate. This guy, man, he ran after himself. John 14 identifies a Judas who says Judas, not Iscariot who at some time questions Jesus as to whether or not he's going to disclose himself to the world. And then we're given this Judas defined as the brother of James. Jude, the brother of James, is, is a brother of James who also authored for us the book of James. And they are both believed to have been half-brothers of Jesus. You go to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says... They, they come and they, from, they see Jesus. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph? And Judas and Simon are not his sisters with us. And they took offense at him and, said, and, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and among his own relatives and in his own household. Now, of course, Jesus, having stepbrothers, and by the way, why is he a stepfather? Because he is born of the Holy Spirit. But afterwards, then, of course, Mary and Joseph would have gone on to have more children. That's problematic for the Roman Catholic doctrine that teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary, in which they teach she remained a virgin all of her days. She never really fully consummated her marriage with Joseph. We are also told at one point that while Jesus was ministering so powerfully in the town of Capernaum that his mother and his brothers came from Nazareth trying to rescue him, trying to save him from the overwhelming pressures that his fame had brought upon him. It says in Matthew 12, 46, and while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was selling and said to them, who is my mother and who is my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of the Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister. Now, he's not denying his his blood relationships, but he is saying there's a deeper relationship that God now has given to us spiritually when we come to share that faith. But it is likely that it's not until after the resurrection of Jesus that these half-brothers finally come to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed their Messiah, that they come to recognize him. Before that time, we're told they took offense with him. It's a John 7 verse 5 says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Not doubt the brothers would have noticed their brother was different. We don't have very much to tell us about Jesus, but what we do know of him is that he is perfect and that he lived a perfect life. What does that look like? I don't know, and none of you know either. No matter how good and darling you think you were, listen, there is nothing good in you at all. I'm the youngest of my family of four children. I have two brothers that have since gone home to be with the Lord in the last five or six years. But I remember as I began to take my course and heading for the pastoral ministry that my brothers were very cynical. 
They were very cynical of me, cynical of, they weren't impressed by me thinking I could be a pastor. Um, and, and at least that was the way it was in the beginning. By the time uh, they got older, they, they, they were still somewhat cynical, but they learned to embrace it a little bit more. And the thing is, is I can understand their cynicism. I mean, they had every reason to be cynical of me. And the reason is, is they knew my past. They knew where I came from. They knew uh, the sin that had dominated much of my life. They didn't know all of it. If they did, that would have made them even more cynical. <laughs> but Jesus' brothers, I mean, James and Jude and his sisters, we know this, that they grew up with Jesus. And yet they come to a point in their life, they realize that they need the atonement of Jesus to wash away their sins. Listen, it really strikes me that if anyone could have questioned the testimony of Jesus and his perfection, it certainly could have been them. If anyone could have said, hey, listen, I, I know, uh, you, know you, you think that he's perfect, but let me tell you, there were some things back there that you know, he really messed up with and some lies that he told, whatever. There's none of that. In fact, they come to believe in him. They receive him with clarity. I believe that, that James, the, the brother here, he becomes a key figure in Jerusalem at the Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. They go on to be these prominent members of the disciples and who are leaders among them, even writing to us two of the books that we have in the New Testament. After the resurrection and the ascension, everything changes. You find in Acts chapter 1. As says they were all, as they, Jesus has ascended, they all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother, and Jesus and with his brothers. Blood relationships. Notice in both James and this book of Jude that neither of them seek to capitalize on their biological relationship with Jesus. It's not like, hey, I, I, I'm special, man. I'm, he's my brother. Man, we're from the same, we, we share the same blood, man. It's, you don't hear any sense of any kind of trying to play on the name here. No, rather he identifies himself as Jude a bondservant, a doulos of Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name, and Christ is his position. And as a bondservant, he is saying, I am a willing servant who willingly placed myself under his authority. I am owned by him to serve him in everything that he would call me to do. I'm a bondservant of Jesus. The name and of the, of the person, of the position, my Messiah. To whom is this letter then written? It's written to those who are called, beloved in God, kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now Jude here is very explicit. He's wanting to make sure that whoever is reading this knows that he is identifying here true, genuine, born-again believers. Not merely those who simply say they go to church. Not those who just say, well, they're good people or they're religious people. No, he gives here the marking of who are the genuine believers who are following after the Lord according to the sound doctrine that was passed on to and through the apostles. These are the ones whose lives characterize faith in the Lord and is demonstrated by both transformation and regeneration. In other words, they're being changed. Their lives are changing found something interesting. I want to read this to you. It says, the latest Pew Research Center, this is written just a couple months ago, survey of the religious compo uh, composition of the United States finds the religiously unaffiliated share of the public is 6% points higher than it was five years ago and 10% higher than a decade ago. Christians continue to make up the majority of the U.S. populace 
but their share of the adult population is 12 points lower in 2001 than it was in 2011. In addition, the share of U.S. adults who say they pray on a daily basis has been trending downward as has the share who say religion is very important in their lives. Currently, about 3 in 10 U.S. adults, 29%, are religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. People who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular when asked about their religious identity, self-identified Christians of all varieties, including Protestants, Catholics, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and Orthodox Christians make up 63% of the adult population. Christians now outnumber religious nuns by a ratio of more than two to one. In 2007, when the center began asking the current question about religious identity, Christians outnumbered nuns almost five to one. Now, the point I want to make to you this, he is saying, I'm putting in all the category of those who would say we are Christian. Whether you belong to the, the Mormon church or probably even the Jehovah's Witness and all those fringe cults that maybe come along with it, uh, the Protestants, the Catholics. He's saying of all those, if there was truly 63% of the population who were truly born again seeking Jesus in their life, we would not see this country and the moral condition that it is in. If that was true. So we recognize that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is truly a Christian. As, as, as a pastor, I know I'm not, I'm not fooled by the fact that there are people who may be coming here who don't even know Jesus. I'm not trying to shake you up. I'm just telling you I would be a fool because churches aren't saved. Individuals are saved. People are saved. So then who then is a genuine Christian? Well, he gives four identifying factors here. He says those who are called, those who are beloved in God the Father, those who are sanctified, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Notice this, those who are called. True believers are those who responded to the call. John 6, no one can serve me unless the Father who sent them draws him, I will raise him up on the last day. True believers are chosen. We are the called out ones. That fact, that word church, we talked about this last week, it's ekklesia. That word ek there is a preposition. It means out of. And here you see the called ones, klesia, the called ones. So here we are, the, we are the ones who have been called out. We are called out for, we've responded to that calling in faith. A true Christian is a believer who is now follows after, heard the call and follows after Christ. You know, without delving into the deeper issues of election as related to free will, because you can go off on any kind of tangent right here. Every one of us has to acknowledge the prevenient grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who called out to us. At the end of the day, only God alone gets the credit for what's happened in our lives. You guys agree with that? He alone gets the glory for what he has done in our lives. Secondly, these are those who are beloved of the Father. John 3, 16, we all know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The next couple of verses, you know, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. He's, he makes the distinction there. Yeah, there's some who have received. There's others who don't. They reject. Well, God is love and that we know he loves all with a perfect holy love, not everyone experiences in their own life the love, beloved love of their father. We who believe, we've experienced. We know, we know what it is to be loved of the father. 
And if you don't know what it is to be loved of the Father, I pray God makes it clear to you if you're a believer. You are loved by your Father. You have a Father who holds you dearly, who watches over you, who cares for you. He loves you. I try to wake up in the morning every day, so Lord, the one thing, I got a thousand reasons why you shouldn't love me, but I know this, there's no way you couldn't love me. That's all you do is love, and his love is unconditional. And I know it in my heart. And it's a good day when you come from singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, and all you got it is here, to when all of a sudden it goes to here and realize, oh, you really do love me. We're beloved of the Father. Thirdly, it's those who are sanctified. Actually, that's another translation. There's a couple of translations. You're beloved of the Father and sanctified. They're both true. We are beloved of the Father. We've been sanctified. And that word sanctified means simply you've been set apart that you have been set apart, made holy by the cleansing blood of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Those who are set apart, did you realize that as a believer? We've been set apart. We've been set apart for holy uses. God has given us a very special role to play in this world. The Old Testament, if you remember the priest, they would have to consecrate. They'd actually make holy their instruments and even their own garments and prepare themselves with the cleansing of water before they could be of service. They had to be set apart for his purposes. And so he says here, you know, through the blood of Jesus, believers have been sanctified. We've been set apart now for God's holy purposes. In verse 3, Jude is going to speak of the faith handed down. Notice this, to the saints. Who are the saints? Well, those who have been sanctified. Those who have been set apart for God's purposes. And the Bible teaches us as believers that we were, past tense, sanctified at a certain time. When we first gave our life to Jesus, we are being, present tense, sanctified right now. The Lord's working that in us. He's still setting us apart. And ultimately, we will be perfectly sanctified in perfection when we meet him face to face. And I'm looking forward to that. But he's working in us. He's changing us. There's this process of regeneration taking place. And I love this last one here, for those who are kept for Jesus Christ. That word kept there means preserved or reserved. It is the same word that is used later on, going down a few verses, which speaks of the fallen angels that are now being kept or reserved for ultimate judgment. True believers are kept for Jesus, carefully watched and guarded. The true believer is secure in his keeping. True believers are kept, we're being kept, reserved and destined for glory. The wicked, the unbelieving are also being kept. They are being reserved for the judgment which is to come. And we see this even at the end of the letter, the prayer I pray every Sunday, now to him who is able, notice this, to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. This past couple of weeks, I've been going into Psalm 121, which has been a tremendous blessing to me. I'm trying to commit it to memory, but in it, he brings out three times, he says, the Lord is your keeper, that he who keeps you will not slumber. That he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor will he sleep. He says he is the keeper of your soul. And I think of that. I say, Lord, help me to, to hold on to that. You're the keeper. You're the keeper. I've been kept for Jesus Christ. I think of Kenneth Weiss. He is a, a Greek scholar. And he interpreted and translated this verse. And I like how he did it. He said, Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who by God the Father have been loved, are in a state of being the permanent object of his love and who for Jesus Christ have been guarded and are in permanent state of being carefully watched to those who are, call, are the called ones. He brings it all out. 
Think of a verse given by the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians where he also brings all this out. Look at this. He said, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. For it was with this he called you out through the gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to these ones, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Not just added to you, but multiplied to you. Unlike Paul, who typically says grace and peace be with you. He uses the term mercy, and it's not too distant from grace, but mercy, I've said this before, is not getting what we deserve. Are you not grateful for his mercy? Are you not needing more of it today? And his grace is getting what we don't deserve, that he is so good to us, and he would be rich and blesses us beyond what we can understand, and that with that he gives us peace. And by peace, he doesn't simply mean restrained aggression. He means inward, real peace that is at peace and unafraid of what takes place, that solitude within, and love, that agape, unconditional love of God. And again, while God is the giver of all these things, and they are offered to every believer, not every believer experiences the mercy, the peace, and love of God in their lives. This is a grace that is freely given, but it is a grace that must be received. In Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. When people reject Jesus, and the gift of grace he so freely offers, they are rejecting love. They are rejecting his forgiveness and his mercy and his peace. That is the cost of rejecting Jesus. Listen, you can keep yourself from experiencing God's love for you, but you can never keep him from loving you. And you can keep yourself from experiencing the sunshine, but you can't keep the sun from shining. It's just going to shine even when the clouds are there. It's still shining. And I'm so glad when it does, aren't you? These past few days have been wonderful. Thank you, Lord. And then he comes to the reason, the purpose, and we're going to close with this real quick here. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about the common salvation, I felt the, ne I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. He says, listen, beloved, I had every intention of, of writing you a different kind of a letter. No doubt maybe he wanted to write something and sharing in their common faith, such as maybe developing the doctrine of justification. Or maybe he wanted just to write and just kind of develop the idea of what it means to be eternally saved in the heaven that awaits us. I don't know what he was thinking, but he said, I wanted to write something which was going to be a sheer pleasure to him. Something that we share in this common salvation. You know, I, I know this, that common salvation here, he's talking about one truth, one gospel that every believer shares. Because God does not have one way of salvation for some and another way of salvation for others. The Bible, and according to this gospel, there's one faith, there's one Lord, there is one baptism. There is one body of which Christ is ahead. I mean, and that is, that is the common faith that every true born-again believer shares. And by doing this, he is not simply deferring to the salvation offered by the Calvinists or the Arminius or the Pentecostals or the Baptists or the Calvary Chapelites or the Assembly of God people or the Presbyterians or the Methodists, but those who share common faith who share this common faith that was given, passed on through, once and for all, through the apostles. Jesus made it very clear in John 6, or 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way. 
that anybody is going to experience this. And listen, if it isn't a common salvation, it isn't God's salvation, and it isn't salvation at all. We who are saved, all of us, the big batch of us, here in this room, from all these different backgrounds and histories and denominations and churches and all that, as we're here this morning, if you belong to Jesus, we share a common faith. We may have differences in certain things that we see, but when it comes to the essence of what it means to belong to Jesus, we are born again by a common faith. And so Paul writes, he says, listen, I I would rather have written to you about other things. I would rather to have talked to you about different things. But I felt it necessary to write to you and to to sound the alarm, to make sure that you are not naive, that you are not found yourself kind of spinning yourself. Is this really happening? Is this true? Or should I follow after this? No, he says, so that you would earnestly contend for the, for the faith that was passed down. And by the faith, he's not saying a faith, but the faith that was handed down to the apostles. Kind of interesting, when you read the book of Jude and Second Peter, you realize there's a lot of similarities. And it could be that Jude had been either with Peter or he had read his letter and it just burned in his heart. But he wants you to know, I'm not writing this to scare you. I'm writing this to prepare you so that you might be provoked once to hold on to, contend for the faith that was once given for all, handed down to the saints. Now, that word contend there is interesting because it simply, in other words, this could be the same word as agonize. It means to give attention to. It is not passive but it is active. It is something you do to earnestly adds emphasis to the emphasis to the contending. Because he's saying it's not merely enough to know or be aware of the apostasy and the danger of it. No, you're gonna have to stand up against it and stand strong for what is true. The faith, not a faith, in faith, but or positive thinking, but the faith, that one. We're given illustration of Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to, notice this, the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and for prayer. How simple it really was in the beginning. How complicated it all became as time went on. But he says, I want us to go back to the roots to kind of remember where it was so that you would contend that you'd remember where you were. And I think of so many illustrations I could give you of the same message of of just remembering the, the basics where we all got our start, that gospel which we received. Yeah, we've grown and we've learned things and we're learning more things, but listen, going back to the beginning, saying, you know what, Lord, I do treasure the very simple things that you've given to you. You know what I'm, I'm ashamed of in my walk? Is that here I am, I've been a believer for pretty close to 50 years, and I'm ashamed of how often I made it so complicated. When it's really so simple, a child can grab a hold of it. Boy, you give it to people And they'll take what is so beautiful, so simple, so wonderful. They'll say, yeah, 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 I I get you can know Jesus, but you got to do this and you got to do that. And they start listing it all off. And Jesus says, I just want my people to love me. I want them to receive me. And allow him to make the changes that he wants to make in your life. Is this relevant? Oh, I think it is. Because there are forces that are work, at work in this world that are putting pressure on you, and I know it. It's putting pressure on me. It says, hey, get with it, man. Things are changing. I'm saying, oh, no, I'm holding on. I'm holding on to what I've got because there is nothing better 
than what I have. But even better yet, it's true. And I'm holding on to the truth. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Jude. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you join us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.